Matthew 3.11, John the baptizer says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'm going to pray for us, and there's a certain part of this text that in my mind I feel like the Lord's going to hover over a little bit this morning. As we talk about travel essentials, as you continue your journey, what is essential? We've been living out as a family out of suitcases for about six weeks. I'm going to pack some more this afternoon. And I realize I have a tendency to overpack, and then on occasion I forget some things that I really should have brought with me. So it's really important, and not only in the physical and the natural, but in the spiritual journey, that you know what's essential and what isn't. The four things I'm going to share with you today are essential for you to understand if we're going to continue to follow Jesus where he's leading us. When we're talking about travel essentials, I, I always picture the Christian life in motion. Somebody told me when I was in my 20s, well, when you get in your 30s, you'll slow down a little bit. And they told me when I was 30s, when you get in your 40s, you know, Jeff, you're going to relax a little bit and you're going to tone it down a little bit. You're just going to want to settle down a little bit more. And now as I'm on closer to 50 than I am to 40, um, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm just seeing that there is this mindset in the American church where, you know, you get to clock out at some point and it's just, you know... Um, sipping a cold one on the beach and just saying, hey, this is it. This is my life from now on, and Jesus will come back one day. And I, I just don't absorb that kind of thinking. I, I, I believe we're in a war. I, I think it's clear in Scripture that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are, you are engaged in a war. You are enlisted. You're drafted. And the beauty is, is that when you get drafted, the commander-in-chief, the son of God, says, by the way, we've already won the war. I just need you to finish up mopping up the battle because we're going to kill the enemy once and for all. And so that's the reality is that we've won, but that's never an excuse for us to be complacent. And so I think of moving in action. I, I, I view the Christian life um, in high death. And, and I view it in, in an accelerated pace. Is there times to be, are there times to be still and know that he is God? Absolutely. Do we need to rest in him? Absolutely. Not taking away from any of that, but saying that you're on a journey. I'm telling you, he's moving you. He's deepening you. He's elongating. He's, he is adding to your experience with him. 
if all he wanted, speaking of the Lord, all he wanted us to do was to just know about him, the only thing he would have done is he would have just given us a Bible and said, just study it, that's all you got to do, learn about me, and we'll make it a reality when you get to heaven when you die. But that's not what he did. Jesus went back to heaven. He says, don't worry because another like me, the comforter is going to come. And so in other words, God remains with his people to this very day. And so it's not just about studying the book about him. It's about doing life with him. And so we are traveling and we're moving and there's no such thing as a static Christian life where you just assume that he never stretches you. When we travel, when we move, there's some things that we must give our hearts to, they're essentials. And one of these in particular today, I think is the great need in the conservative evangelical church in America. And we'll talk about it, but let's begin where the scriptures begin. John the Baptist is bursting onto the scene. Hundreds, if not thousands are coming out to him in the Judean wilderness. He is baptizing Israelites under repentance. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. He looks funny. He dresses funny. He's got a strange diet. He, he, he lives out in the wilderness and he pulls no punches when he is preaching, no matter who's in front of him. May it be the most meek woman or the highest and most arrogant Pharisee. He preaches the same message. Repent of your sin because God is initiating his kingdom. And so crowds are coming out because prophetically there hadn't been a voice for four centuries. And so when John the Baptist burst onto the scene, he is immediately um, kind of gaining notoriety. And then on this particular day, Jesus is coming to where John is baptizing him. And it is in that context of the sinless, uh, sinless Son of God coming to John the baptizer. And he's saying, John, you're baptizing Israel. You're baptizing the Hebrews. You're preparing them for the kingdom of God. I want you to baptize me. Now, obviously, there's some trickiness here because when we think of baptism, we think of repentance. And you only repent from one thing. What is it? Sin. And Jesus didn't have any. And so automatically, there's some theological questions that can come up. But let me just go ahead and take that off the mark before we get into the text. Jesus is not coming to be washed from his sins. He doesn't have any. Jesus is coming to identify with the sinners that he came to save. Jesus is authenticating the ministry of John the Baptist and the message of John the Baptist. And he is saying what this man is preaching, what this man is saying is true. It is very interesting in John and Jesus's inner relationship that John was always magnifying Jesus. But whenever Jesus spoke of John, Jesus is always authenticating John. John is glorifying Jesus, but Jesus is affirming John, and so that's what's taking place here. So let's look at John's life briefly, and then we're going to look at the Son of God for the rest of these verses. There is a sense of destiny that is a travel essential, a sense of destiny. Now, destiny in our day is kind of a, a new agey sounding word, but it's really, it's a word that conveys a biblical principle. It's a sense of purposefulness and intentionality about one's life. And as Christians, our destiny is written and housed in the sovereign God who birthed you into this world and this generation with a reason for a purpose. You're not an accident. You're not incidental. You're not meant to live your life on the sidelines watching everybody else. You have a destiny because God doesn't make anything arbitrarily. And he made you with purpose. He made John with purpose. John understood his purpose. Verse number 11, John utters these words. I baptize you 
with water for repentance. Now, just housed in those words, let me give you just a little background. John was the prophesied forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John knew, and people were asking him, John, you preach with power, You're, you have no regard for the establishment, you, you, you speak with great authority and power, are you the Messiah? And John would tell, tell them regularly, I'm not the Messiah, the Messiah is coming. And the Messiah is one, I can't even buckle his shoes, we'll get that in a minute. But he is saying, no, I'm coming, and I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. Just very quickly, because repentance is one of the words that in our culture people don't like to use. Repentance is not a, a, a user-friendly word. It's not a politically correct word. Repent is a no-nonsense, non-negotiable command from a holy God to sinful man. And sinful people like you and I, we are first brought this command by God. God will say many things, but the first command he gives any human being is repent. It's a metanoia. It's a changing of the mind which is attached and corded to a changing of actions. It's not a simple mental ascent saying, yeah, God is good. I'm not. Yeah, I believe he's holy. I believe he's good. I believe Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I heard I need to accept him. So let me, let me just say this prayer, this little you know, evangelical abracadabra, and then maybe I'll go to heaven when I die. That's not repentance. Repentance is probably best displayed in the act of a publican, not a republican, hold on there, a publican, a tax gatherer, who said, Lord, be merciful unto me, the sinner. It's when you come to that place where you recognize you can't hide from God. You, You don't need to hide from God. He already knows you're a sinner. And as a sinner, you come before a holy God who has pledged to you grace and mercy and forgiveness and pardon through the merits of his son. And in that moment you say, I'm not fit to rule my life. I'm not fit to live independently of God. I am a condemned sinner. It's not that we will be condemned. It's that apart from Christ we are condemned. But when we repent and turn towards Jesus, condemnation is removed and justification is placed upon us. In other words, God receives the repentant sinner in the same way that he receives his own son. And so when we come to Jesus Christ in repentance, we are justified before a holy God because of what Christ has done. John the baptizer was preparing them for that. He was saying the kingdom of God is now here. You need to repent, but I'm going to baptize you with water as a symbolic act of you turning from filth and turning unto God. But notice this, that was John's purpose. Doesn't sound all that glamorous. We look at John today and we think, wow, what a stout-hearted saint. But in John's day, he was kind of an outcast. He was kind of a a peripheral guy. I'm going to tell you, most southern churches wouldn't have let John the Baptist preach on a Sunday morning because he was gruff. He dressed weird. He he, he was a strange kind of on the fringe uh, kind of guy. And, And yet, that's who the Lord picked to be the forerunner of Jesus. But John's purpose, watch this was tethered to Jesus' mission. Look at the end of verse number 11. John tethered his purpose to Jesus' mission. He says, yeah, I'm a water baptizer for repentance, but the one coming after me is mightier than I am, and I'm not worthy to carry his sandals and watch this. John said, I'm going to baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, the Messiah, uh, for whom I'm the forerunner, uh, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, for the sake of my purpose today, I'm not going to linger over what it means to be baptized, as John promised, with the Holy Spirit and fire. I will simply say this. It's completely distinct from being water baptized. 
Uh, water baptism is good. If, you, if you're saved and you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you because I believe the second command, first command is repent from God. The second command is be baptized as a public testimony of your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never been baptized, we'd love to water baptize you here because I know you're not ashamed of the one who has saved you. But to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire is a completely different aspect of the work of Jesus. The point I'm trying to make here is not to give you a theological distinction between between water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism, what I want to tell you here is John the Baptist, in his sense of destiny, understood that his gifting as a preacher, his opportunity that God had given him, the audience in front of him, the message he had been entrusted with, it was all tethered into the mission of Jesus Christ. And so his individual purpose as a believer, as a redeemed saint, his individual purpose was not detached from God's overall kingdom purpose. I'm going to give you something in our generation. Lots of people say, I want to know what my purpose is. I want to know what my purpose is. Tell me what my purpose is. I got to know what my purpose is. Not as many people are asking that question and adding this. I want to know what my purpose is so I can find my place in your kingdom and fulfill it. A lot of people are making their purpose about them. And I'm just going to say this boldly this morning. My purpose has never been about me. Oh, it blesses me. It encourages me. It, 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 it kind of links me up with what God's doing. But my purpose is not really mine. My purpose is an assignment from God and so is yours. Say, well, Jeff, I don't feel like I have a purpose. Well, you just haven't found it yet. You're probably already doing it. You're probably already in the arena of your purpose, but because we don't do easily what John does here, we don't tether where we are, what our circumstances are, where our family is, what our daily routine is. We think that God's purpose is independent of that, when the fact of the matter is God's purpose probably involves that. So somebody who's a stay-at-home mom with five kids and not a lot of glamour can, can say, I am standing as a soldier of Jesus Christ right in the middle of my purpose. So can a ditch digger, so can a physician, so can a politician, so can a person who is a, in vocational ministry. All of us have a purpose, but brothers and sisters, the purpose is not out there somewhere independent of way, the way you're living your life. John was living in the desert. He was eating bugs, dipped in honey apparently, but he was eating bugs. He wore really weird scratchy clothes, and, and yet his purpose was centralized in that arena. He wasn't trying to get into the temple. I mean, you figure the first prophet that's in, he's in a priestly line too, the first prophet, you know, you figure he'd go straight to the temple to make his mark for the kingdom, not John. John's in the outback. John's doing things as God had seen fit for John to do. And John did the wise thing and said, who I am and where I am, I'm going to intentionally attach that to God's purpose in my generation. And in doing so, he found his purpose. Look in verse 12. I think this is very important. This is buzzing in my heart and my mind at all times now. Verse number 12, John discerned the season was imminent. It says in verse 12, speaking of Jesus, John says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear the threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a lot of agrarian imagery in an agricultural society, Jesus and John, they just used the images that everybody was familiar with. And so what John is saying here is the Messiah is coming. 
The one coming behind me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and that fire speaks of purification, it also speaks of judgment, speaks of a lot of different things, but the people knew that John was talking about the Messiah in some way. This is what John ends up saying. Yes, I am discerning that the unique season that we are in as the people of God, he's saying it in his day, this is a season that is beginning. Remember, if you go back up into Matthew 3 and you look in the other Gospels, you're going to find John's message is, the kingdom of God is not out there somewhere. God's doing something right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. John was saying, in essence, this is not a business as usual season, folks. This is not the time for us to just kick back and wait on another century of prophetic silence. This is a season where God is doing something. And that's what John was telling his generation. It's very similar to the sons of Issachar in our Old Testament, of whom the Bible says that they discerned the times and knew what the people ought to do. And so there are occasions where God works amongst his people in such a way that we have to be discerning and say, you know what? What's going on? What we are spiritually in tuning. What we're seeing in the word is being played out before our eyes. What we're hearing God say in times of fasting and prayer and soaking and seeking, we are recognizing that God is doing something. Now, it's one thing to recognize it, but people of God, somebody's got to start proclaiming it. And I believe that we are living in a time just like John was describing in his day. That this is not a business as usual season. And I believe that before the last few weeks of chaos, I'm seeing it in the scriptures. I'm seeing us exponentially increase in our, our speed towards the end of the age. And meanwhile, friends, listen to me. We can't afford to be Christians that are whining, complaining, accusing, provoking, pointing fingers, pouting, sucking our proverbial thumbs, and just doing things that are mundane that have no kingdom impact. Let me tell you something about those of you that have a kingdom vision and you know what your purpose is and you're sensing what God is doing and you're living at an elevated level of expectation. You know, as your expectation elevates, you know what decreases? Your capacity to put up with nonsense from other Christians, right? Am I in a room full of people that are nonsensical or do you, you believe me on that? I mean, listen, when, when you start getting a big picture vision and it consumes you and it moves you and you start saying, man, God's doing something right now. We don't have time to waste. We're living with an urgency. We're living with an expectation. You don't have the same threshold of, of accommodation for Christians that want to bicker about the color of the carpet or the tempo of the music. You're saying to yourself, no, man, God's doing something here. John was living in a time like that. He's saying, hey, folks, I want you to know something that you didn't know before I told you. You ought to know it. Well, what is it, John? Kingdom of God is hand, at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Now, as... As reason would teach us, the longer you live, the closer you are to the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. We get that. I'm not asking you to be natural, and I'm not, ask, I'm not appealing to just a sense of reason. I'm asking you a question. Don't you sense it? Don't you sense that the enemy has ratcheted up all of his activity to a ferocious, feverish pace? And do you really think that God's going to let that go unresisted? Of course not. So as God resists the accelerated activity of the enemy, through whom does God resist it if not us? So what does that mean, Jeff? It means this. It's time to find out your place and your purpose in the midst of what he's doing. And so as we go further, this is just John's words. Now, I want to learn from Jesus. I, oh man, always, that's an understatement. 
I just like watching my Savior sometimes as the Son of Man. He's fully divine. Jesus Christ is God. I don't ever want you to think that I don't get that. But I'm focusing lately on, on him as the Son of Man because as he is God, he's also fully human. Say, so Jeff, explain that. No, I can't. <laughs> I just rejoice in it. And so when I look in verses 13 and 14 and 15, I'm going to see the Son of Man and, and his commitment to humility. This is also a travel essential for you. If you're going to go where God wants you to go, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get there without packing the travel essential of humility. You know why? Because when you go where God is going, he shows you great mighty things that you don't know and have never known before, and you can't handle that without humility. You can't be entrusted with it without humility. So let's look at, at what Jesus does. Humility, first of all, friends, is to be pursued. Look at verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, the Ruler, the one whose name is, was, and will be above every other name, Jesus Christ intentionally went to the wilderness to find John by the Jordan, the muddy, nasty Jordan River, and he said, John, I want you to baptize me. Right in the margin of your Bible, divine humility. I mean, for Jesus to step into the waters of the Jordan, to be laid down and immersed in those waters by John the Baptist, who was a great man, but still a sinner. That's humility. That's Jesus submitting himself to a process and what God the Father was doing, Jesus submits himself into it, even though he didn't, theologically, he didn't have to. And yet, and we're gonna find out in a minute why he did so. Before I go there, let me give you an amusing story. My daughter has really enjoyed working uh, the last year or so down with children. She's down there three out of four Sundays. She's down there right now working with some of our smallest. And what a great team and good things are going on down there. It's just going to increase. But Alicia, and I won't mention his name because his mom's probably in here somewhere, but Alicia has this little boy that she just absolutely loves. Now, she loves your kids too. She loves the girls. But this little boy has just got something on him. And so he, he's very articulate. I think he's maybe four or five years old. And he, he came into Alicia's class the other day, and normally she runs and greets and hugs all the kids and loves on them and everything. She's a real nurturing, maternal young woman. And what, something happened the other day, and she didn't give him the hug. And she's busying herself with something else, and she feels a little tug on her shirt. And she looks down, she says, hey, and says his name. She kneels down. He said, I've been here for minutes. <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I've been here for minutes. And she said, okay, I'm sorry, son. I didn't, I didn't see you. And so they're sitting down, and a lot of things are going on, and kids are playing. And this little boy just wants to be right up on her leg. And so they're sitting there, and she said his, I think they were sitting on something, his legs are swinging. You know how little kids do. And he's looking around. And he just looks at Alicia, and he says, you know, I think I'm the smartest boy in here. <laughs> and Alicia, seeing a teaching moment, she said, well, you know, that may be, but I'm going to tell you, you don't need to tell that to the other children because they might get jealous. And she said, he sat there for a second. She, he looked up at her and she goes, or he said, yeah, I think they know. <laughs> We've been laughing about that one for a few weeks at my house. I mean, he's guileless. He's like this silly teenage girl. It's okay. They know. I'm the class genius. Now, the, the point being is this. 
Humility doesn't come naturally. That's the point I'm trying to make. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And when He's ready, He'll exalt you. And so Jesus doesn't only teach this, and the Scriptures don't even teach it, He models it for us. When, when, we, when we start out talking about destiny, I'm going to put this out there just to provoke you to think. If you're not sensing destiny in your life or on your life, if you haven't found your purpose, if destiny is eluding you, can I ask you, how's humility working for you? Because I believe destiny, where we started, is actually the end result of the other things we're going to talk about. And apart from humility, you're not ready to know your destiny because you'll make it about you. So Jesus, before he embarks on public ministry, before he starts healing and doing the miracles and delivering from demons and all of the amazing things he did and then eventually dying for the sins of mankind, before he did anything, he humbled himself. Look in verse 14. Humility is counterintuitive. Even John knows that there's something odd about Jesus coming to him for baptism. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me, if you read the gospel of John in this account, when Jesus comes to the baptism scene, John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John proclaims the identity from a human perspective of Jesus. He says, here's the Lamb of God. And to all the Jewish listeners, the Lamb of God has a very rich significance to it. They're they're seeing that this is the sacrificial lamb. And John says, in in a prophetic wisdom, he says, he's going to take away the sins of the world. Now, Matthew doesn't record that. But after that statement, Jesus comes down to be baptized. And John is saying, this doesn't make sense to me. Friends, I want to tell you something. Sometimes God will lead you to embrace humility, and you'll have to submit to something that's counterintuitive. Your flesh already doesn't want to submit to anything, even when it's real. Uh, Listen, people talk, Amy is such a meek and quiet wife and everything, and when she's counseled women over the years, they'll say, yeah, but it's easy for you to follow Jeff because you're just submissive. And she always laughs at him. She's like, nobody is naturally submissive. Submissive, and by the way, I don't go around saying, submit, woman. That's why I'm still married, by the way. And if you do that, no wonder she's not submitting, gentlemen. I'm going to send you a bill for that marriage counseling right there. But the point being is this. Submission is counterintuitive. Humility is counterintuitive. Sometimes the Lord is going to put a situation before you, and it's going to provoke something within you, and you actually think it's about what's coming against you or infringing on your autonomy, and it's actually the Lord saying, I'm going to give you a chance to find out if you're humble or not. And Jesus modeled humility, even when John was saying, I don't feel right about baptizing you. And and look at what Jesus says. Look down at verse number uh, 15. Humility is essential. Jesus answered him. John, let it be so for now. He says, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John said, okay, he consented. He'd he'd baptize him. There's a lot of stuff we could say there, but I I think I've already given you the gist of it. John, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, I only say and do the things that I hear the Father saying and I see the Father doing. So everything Jesus did as the Son of Man, he took his cues 100% perfectly from the Father. He always, and that doesn't diminish his divinity, it actually accentuates the relationship within the Godhead. That Father, Son, and Spirit are equal, but they have differing roles in how they function with each other. 
And so Jesus said, it's just the right thing to do. And if Jesus is always doing what he hears the Father telling him to do, then the Father said, I want you to be baptized by John. And Jesus humbly submitted to something that on the outside, he really didn't have to. He didn't have any sins to wash away, but he did it because he was submitted to the Father's will. I actually feel like maybe the Lord's kind of threading this into somebody's heart right now. That some of you are maybe wrestling with your own pride. And I do. I know I wrestle with it. I've had to submit all, all, I mean, years and years and years, submit along the way to various things that I didn't feel in my flesh I should have to submit to. But I always was, not always, but when I was successful, I was able to see the Father has given me an opportunity to be like Jesus, to humble myself and submit myself, trusting that if and when the time comes, he's going to exalt me. But my job is to humble myself. And so Jesus did. Let me give you Philippians 2 just as a textual reminder of what it what it means to take this travel essential of humility. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And by the way, if we're ever going to be humble, it comes with emptying ourselves of ourselves. He took on the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, Jesus didn't humble himself at the baptism waters of Jordan so he'd never have to do it again. Jesus humbled himself as the first humbling public moment of his life, and he kept doing it until he met the most intense humbling moment of his life. That was in Gethsemane. In Gabbatha, Gethsemane, or Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha, through his passion, he just had to keep humbling himself. Let us all be careful to know this. When you humble yourself and you act in that and you pack it up for your travels during the spiritual life, you're planting seeds of goodness that are going to really blossom. But you're always going to be planting seeds of humility. You don't plant them here and never have to do it again once you pass the test. It's constant. So I'm going to ask you before moving on to the next point, as you're entering the next season, whatever that might be of your life, Are you walking in intentional humility? Say, Jeff, how do I know that? Are you more aware of what's wrong with everybody else? Or are you more aware of what God's requiring of you? If you're more aware of what's wrong with everybody else, you're about a mile and a half away from humility. If you're sensing what God is requiring of you and you're submitting to that, then you are perhaps already walking in humility and just need to go further. Verses 16 and 17. Y'all with me? An assurance of identity for me. Uh, This is, I think, what the evangelical church needs more than anything right now. I think even compared to humility, excuse me, even compared to identity, humility is easy. What am I talking about identity? Let's, Let's watch an inter-Trinitarian moment in Scripture where Father, Son, and Spirit are all in the same passage and they're all doing something. Watch this. 
and assurance of identity is a travel essential. What does it look like? Well, first of all, let's see it exemplified in Jesus, the obedience of the Son. At the beginning of verse 16, look at what the Scriptures say. When Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. Now, I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to finish the verse in a moment. It is, what everything that's about to follow is happening in the context of the Son being obedient to the Father. The Son being humble, humbling Himself before man. Everything that's about to happen is happening in the context of Jesus submitting Himself to the will of the Father and, and engaging in that moment in humble obedience. And the Bible says that as Jesus went down in the water and He was baptized not with a special baptism, not with a supersized baptism, not with a uh, high-octane, super-cool neon baptism that is just His own. He was baptized like everybody else that was baptized that day. He put Himself in identification with man under the yoke of the Father. And the Bible says, though, when Jesus came up onto the water, that Jesus saw the heavens opened. Now, I'm going to stretch you a little bit here, because very few of us thought about this this morning. How many of you know that there is the reality of a dimension of existence that you and I cannot see unless heaven opens our eyes. Amen. I, I can give you a Bible on it. I can give you Stephen at his stoning where he's about to give his life and he saw the heavens open and the Son of Man there in heaven about to receive him. I can give you the servant of Elisha who, where they were surrounded by the physical enemy and the servant of Elisha is panicking and he's saying, oh no, what are we going to do? And the prophet prays, Lord, open his eyes. And, and it was that simple. Lord, open his eyes. And, and the servant's eyes were opened. And he saw that the armies of heaven were surrounding the army of man. But he didn't see it. By the way, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I think in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4. And he, and he said this. He talked about the God of this age who has blinded the minds of those that believe not. That they can't see. The gospel's hid from them. And so there is this great moment to glorify and honor the Lord by saying, I can't see anything unless you show it to me. Paul would say in another place, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you've received it, why do you, paraphrase, why do you act like you didn't receive it? And so we see all throughout Scripture that there is a, another dimension, the dimension on which God is working is not, not primarily terra firma, physical, time, space, matter. That we are spiritual creatures in a corporal body, living in time, touching matter, and living a great deal of our lives by our senses. But there's an entirely different realm, the realm of which we truly have our citizenship, that it's other dimensional. And so when Jesus comes up out of the water, the reality of the kingdom, he sees it. And by the way, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that at any time Jesus wasn't omnipresent, wasn't, or excuse me, wasn't omnipotent, wasn't omniscient. I'm not saying that he's kind of learning this stuff. I, I don't understand all the dynamics, but I do know one thing. Before he went in the water, he was just there in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, it was not only the Jordan, but it was the dimension of heaven opened up to him. There's a lot going on that God would gladly show me and you if we would humble ourselves and obey. Humility and obedience are the gateway to blessing. 
Listen, I appreciate all the spiritual encounters I've had with the Lord. I want more. Amen. I want more. God, whatever you've got for me, I want it all. I don't want to miss a thing. I, I want every bit of it. But I can tell you that there is no blessing that I've received, either in wisdom or experience, that didn't come unless there was a season of humility and obedience tied to it. If you're living angry, if you're living frustrated, if you're living with a superior spiritual attitude, you're not seeing much of that other dimension. You're not experiencing it. You're not tasting and seeing. You can blame anybody you want, but brother, oh man, I just feel it stirring in me this morning. The reality is, is your disobedience and your pride is blocking your vision. It's nobody else's fault but our own when we enter in a season like that. But Jesus obeys and humbles himself. It wasn't flamboyant or extravagant. He just did what the Lord, the Father was telling him to do. Now, go into verse 16 further. So the heavens are opened, and now we see, we already saw the Son at the beginning of verse 16. Now you see the Spirit, the abiding of the Spirit. And, he, and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. I love that imagery. The Holy Spirit coming to rest on Jesus in the form of a dove. Say, Jeff, was it a literal dove? Was it, I don't know, man. I'm just reading my Bible and trying to preach it. I don't ask, don't, if, if, if we get lost in a natural explanation of a spiritual text, then you're missing the point. I'm, I'm going to boil it down. Let me, let me dumb it down for my own sake. Something amazing happened when Jesus was baptized. The heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon Jesus. So you have the Holy Spirit affirming the Son of God, the Spirit of God affirming the Son of God in that moment. But it even gets better. You say, Jeff, can it get better than that? Yeah. Because it goes from two-thirds of the Godhead being involved to all three members of the Godhead, Father, Spirit, Son. And look in verse 17. Here's where we're talking about identity. Listen to the pleasure of the Father over Jesus, the Son. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Oh, come on, help me, Lord, help me. Woo. Friends, listen. Jesus hadn't preached a single sermon. He hadn't raised a single corpse. He hadn't opened a single blind eye. The water and the wine hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't done a thing that the outward natural eye could see. But when the Father wanted the Son to begin three years of public ministry there in Israel, before he gave them anything to do, he told everybody who Jesus was. Identity. Watch this. Identity. The voice comes from heaven. This is my son, and I am pleased with him. Most of us could never fathom God taking intense pleasure in us. Now, if you're graduating in grace, you're going to get this pretty easy, but a lot of us struggle to think, well, yeah, God tolerates me because he's got to on a judicial technicality because I, I accepted Jesus, and so he, he's got he's to accept me now. No turning back now. Uh, I got you, Lord. You know, I'm going to hold you to your word as if he's saying, oh, man, you're right. <laughs> he initiated the whole process. 
He paid the whole price. It was his idea, not yours. He didn't set it up just to pull back regretting later. Friends, your identity is in Jesus. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, Colossians 3. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we are accepted. We are fully accepted in the beloved. And that means the delight that the Father places upon the only begotten Son is imputed to all the other sons and daughters of God when we come into him. And I'm just going to tell you something that might just mess your theology up. He doesn't forensically just love you forensically. He loves you paternally. He is your Father. And your identity is rooted in him. And there's got to come a time in our lives where we decide who we're going to listen to. Because the devil wants to assign you an identity. And that identity is, you're an unworthy, horrible, rotten, stinking failure, a sinner, any other, any other lump I can place on you, I'm going to give you that identity. I hope you'll believe me because I'm the devil and I like to run the show. And then the world wants, you to, assign, wants to assign an identity to you. Oh, you're a white person, you're a black person, you're a Hispanic person, you're male, you're female, you're young, you're old, you're an American, you're a Haitian, you're, you're a Lithuanian, and so on and so on. And then our, our, our world system tells you, no, no, you're a Democrat, no, you're a Republican, no, you're an independent, you're rich, you're poor, you're, you're pretty, you're ugly, you're tall, you're short, and all of these labels that are out there, and there's just got to come the point in your life where you say, I am sick of all the lesser presumed authoritative voices that are in existence trying to assign me my identity. Lord, I open up myself in humility and obedience. What do you say about me? Because ultimately that's the truth. And, and when you find your identity in what God says about you, that is when things begin to make sense. You say, well, Jeff, what's the problem? The problem is, is that American, maybe even in other parts of the world, but a lot of Christianity, the religion, seeks to define you by your activity, not your identity. And so we're heaping activity on people. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. You're spiritual if you do this. You're spiritual if you don't do this. Do, do, do. And we become human beings, excuse me, human doings instead of human beings. But before Jesus did anything in, in the omniscient eternal wisdom of the Father, he said, I'm going to make a proclamation before you do a thing. You're my beloved son, and I am well pleased with you. How significant is that? Well, I'm going to leapfrog. I'm almost done. I'm going to leapfrog into chapter 4 before I deal with the first two ver verses. I'm going to deal with the first two verses in a minute. But when Satan came to tempt Jesus, do you know what he went for? He went for his identity. If you are the son of God, if Satan knew that if he could get Jesus to waver on his identity, he could get Jesus to act independently of that identity. And he knew, Satan knew, theoretically, that he could win. If he could get Jesus to doubt whether he was the beloved son of God, then Jesus would try to find that identity in making the stones turn to bread so he could eat because he had been fasting. Or jumping down off the pinnacle of the temple so the angels would come to his rescue. The, the, the temptation of Satan came through the corridor of hunger when he said, make the bread, excuse me, the rocks into bread. But it really wasn't about physical hunger as much as it was doubting who he was as the beloved son of the father. And so that's what's going on. Man, God help this to land wherever it needs to land. That's what's going on in our churches and in Christendom. 
Well, the, the enemy comes in and says, you better scurry, you better worry, you better hurry, because you can't really afford to rest in that pie in the sky by and by that you're a beloved child of God. You better earn it. You better work it. You better make it happen. And by the way, Satan will always tell you, yeah, that's okay, but you need to do more. You need to do more. You need to do better. You need to grow. Yeah, and just all of this stuff to keep you focused on you instead of just having the audacious uh, release under grace and say, my identity is in what Jesus has done for me. My identity is in who God says I am. My identity is in the sealing, the unbreakable seal of the Holy Spirit who abides in the tabernacle of my body. My identity is settled forever. It's not dependent on what I do. It's dependent on what Jesus has done and what he has imputed unto me. And so he attacks your identity. Friends, there are, uh, I don't even have time. There are scores of ways that you can identify yourself. Right now, man, lines are being drawn in our country where you're going to have to pick a color. That's, that's just going to be your identity. I've purposely been going up to, uh, well, not going up to, but when I have an uh, uh, encounter with somebody of a different race than me, I've been asking them, if there's one thing that I as a white man could know that you would want me to know that you're pretty convinced I don't know about what it means to be black in America, I'm all ears. I want to learn. And I've been doing that. I had a lady email me this week who by her own testimony has battled, she's a white lady, has battled racism in her life. She's older and grew up in that old South where races were segregated. And I wrote something about this in a blog about just talk to people of other color and listen to them. Just listen to them. She said she had never done this. She's in her 70s, I think. And she said, I, I asked a black woman what she would want me to know. And this lady typed out and she said, Jeff, it, it, it unfolded into a conversation that I wish I had had 50 years ago with a black person. You see, when you start identifying yourself as a white or a black or a Latino or an Asian or a younger, I'm a Gen Xer. Well, I'm a baby boomer. I'm a millennial. Or, are any of you saved? Because your identity is not in your color or where, the year you were born or where you live or what you drive or what you earn. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. Now listen, I know we all know this. It's crystal clear right here. But let me tell you something. When we walk out these doors, it's not as easy to live it as it is to amen it. And the victory comes where you just start saying, man, I know who I am in Jesus. I don't like everything about me. That may encourage some of you to know that I actually feel that way. I don't like everything about me. I don't like everything about you. But I, I don't think we have to. Because we are bigger than the individual components about ourselves that may not be measuring up. That's what grace is all about. Grace is a comprehensive package deal. You're either in it or you're not in it. You don't have one leg in, one, one leg out. It's not the hokey pokey, amen? You, you, are, you are either in grace and fully accepted or you are out of grace and currently under condemnation. And if that is you, I would tell you today that the one who provides that grace is saying, why don't you come into the grace that I'm providing? Why don't you find your identity in me? And so the pleasure of the Father comes down on Jesus. And so as we finish up here, let me just give you this. When our sense of responsibility outweighs our sense of identity, we will struggle as Christians. Joy and peace flow from identity, not activity. And to the degree that you're trying to 
Manage your joy and peace levels through what you do. You're losing it. Joy and peace don't come through activity. They really do come through identity. We pursue activity because it's measurable. It's easily accessible. We can do something and feel good immediately. And yet the key is what if you can't do what you used to do? What if your joy was in X, Y, and Z, but you can no longer do X, Y, and Z? Then where'd your joy go? Identity never leaves you. Identity never abandons you. Identity never changes because it is held together by the marvelous grace of God, and he gives it freely to all who will believe. So we go down into verse number four for the last, excuse me, chapter four, for the last um, travel essential. Because up to this point, it's been really sweet, but just know this. The last one is this, an expectation of intensity. I'm not talking about you being intense about your faith. I'm talking about when you start traveling in a sense of destiny with a commitment to humility, walking out your identity, the intensity of the enemy is coming against you. Mark it down. Some of you are living that right now. Maybe you need a reminder today. You have a very real enemy. You say, Jeff, come on. Let's just let the text speak. So the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit comes and descends upon Jesus and abides there. So you have father, son, and spirit. And the gospel writers teach us that immediately after that baptism, the spirit of God drives Jesus not to the palace, not to the throne, not to the applause and the shouts of Hosanna, but immediately he's driven into the wilderness. The first place that Jesus went after the unprecedented affirmation of the Father, the first place that Jesus finds himself is led by the Spirit into a wilderness. Let that speak to you. Let that speak to all of you who've been disillusioned because of difficulty in the Christian life when you're doing everything. Jesus was doing everything right. And where did he end up for a season? In the wilderness. Who was there to comfort him? Nobody. The angels would come and minister to him at the end of it. But it was him and the Lord, excuse me, him and the wild beasts and the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, look at the text. When the Holy Spirit lands, forgive me if that sounds irreverent, but I'm addicted to alliteration, so I'm going to milk it here. When the Holy Spirit lands, he leads Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, landed on Jesus. And Jesus, in ongoing submission and humility, was led by the Spirit. How does that work out? I do not know. You can ask Jesus when you get to heaven. I do not know. I can only read what it says, that in some way, we know that Jesus was immediately led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the King James talks about him being driven into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is not a toy for us to play with in our little gatherings. Does the Holy Spirit defy comprehension? Of course, he's God. Does the Holy Spirit sometimes work in ways that prim, proper, and prudent people are uncomfortable with? Yep, he always has. I mean, if you don't believe that, go back to Pentecost. I mean, you got a howling wind, you got tongues of fire dancing on people. I think we're getting off easy, amen? I mean, the Holy Spirit moves in ways that we can't always understand. Jesus taught that to Nicodemus. 
He said, anybody that is born of the Spirit is going to be like the wind. You don't know where they blew in from. You don't know where they're blowing out to. There's a certain mystery involved. But the Holy Spirit is not a toy. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not a toy. You're in a church that affirms the biblical teaching of the active nature of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The problems are not with the gifts. The problems are with those who do not have enough love and maturity to know how to properly use the gifts. And so that's where the, that's where the issues arise. But when the Holy Spirit begins to move, sometimes He will move you to come away from the aha moment, the, the sense of affirmation. He'll say, now, before I really usher you into your life work, I'm going to take you out here in the wilderness a little bit. And it's just going to be me and you. He did it with the Son of God. I don't know where you are today in your journey with Jesus, but I guarantee you the crowd's big enough to where maybe as many as a third to a half of you are feeling like you're in a wilderness and you're a little over it. You're just tired of it. You're not being disobedient. I mean, you're not perfect, but you're, you're, not, you're not living in independence of God. But there aren't any results. The fruit's not abounding. The harvest hasn't come in. You're, you're weary in well-doing. Uh, I get it. I've been there. I understand all about that. Please don't blame the devil. Sometimes God leads you there. God is not as interested in your results as he is in your heart. And if he can't connect with your heart in the middle of harvest season... He'll be more than willing for the good of your soul to take you into a little bit of a dry season in the wilderness just so he can meet with you. It's not because he's bad. It's because he's actually way, let me say it like I used to say, he's way gooder than you can ever imagine. And so when the Holy Spirit leads, excuse me, lands, he leads. When the Holy Spirit leads, Satan lingers. Look at the end of verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So when God is orchestrating a moment in your life, the devil has a counter-orchestration. Some of you are being attacked by the enemy, and it does happen. It's not always the enemy. Mark that down. I don't see a demon behind every shrub, but sometimes the enemy, he's been watching human nature. He, he's been in the very presence of God. Before he fell, Lucifer was perhaps even the, the chief among the angelic uh, worshipers. And so the enemy knows the Lord, at least academically, better than you and I do. And he's been watching humans since the Garden of Eden. So he, he also knows how, what it looks like when God begins to work in somebody's life. And so when he sees a threat to his domain, he counters it. That's why we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's why it's primarily a spiritual war. And so the enemy was there saying, okay, the Spirit's leading this, the Messiah, my enemy, into the wilderness and I know what's going to happen there. There's going to be the embracing of his life ministry. And after the wilderness experience, if I don't undermine that, he's going to go onto the cross. He's going to heal people. He's going to deliver people from my demon authority. People are going to be redeemed by my enemy, this great and glorious God that they love. And, and they're, they're going to be redeemed. So I've got to fight this. And so he meets Jesus in the wilderness. Why? Not for casual conversation. To undermine the very season that the Father and the Spirit were ushering the Son into. He said, Jeff, why are you telling us all this? I'm telling you because it is a template for how he works in the sons and lives of the sons and daughters of God. 
that when, when God is working in your life, Satan only has one desire. I've got to steal that from them before they get it. If they get it, I've got to kill it before it brings God glory. And before anything everlasting happens, I've not only got to steal it, kill it, I've got to destroy it. And so he fights. Satan lingers when the Spirit leads. Happens in churches. When God starts moving, I want to tell you something. Mark it down. I mean, good night. I know this by experience. That uh, when the Spirit starts moving, the devil hangs out for a little while. He does not enjoy seeing a dead church become a living church. He doesn't enjoy uh, an ecclesiastical museum turning into a life-giving hospital. And so... Jesus goes out into the desert, and the devil meets him there. And then I'm going to finish right here. Uh, worship team, come on up, because that will help me really finish. When, when Satan lingers, we have to become learners. What does that mean? Look at what Jesus does. These are not two statements divorced from each other. Jesus, Satan is tempting him. That happens in the beginning, end of verse 1. He's tempting him, he's tempting him. And Jesus' response is fasting, not relying on anything physical saying no to the most natural appetites of the human experience, which were water and bread. And Jesus says, no, he is literally living off the daily allotment of whatever is needed from the Father. And so he's fasting for 40 days. And if you've ever done prolonged fast, I've never done a 40-day fast. Some of you have. I've never done a 40-day fast. But as you elongate a fast with a humility posture and an obedience posture and a hungry appetite towards God, you begin to see the heavens open. You begin to hear the voice of God. You begin to see reality as God sees reality. The word of God becomes three-dimensional to you. And, and, and the most, the, even the most bitter things become sweet to you. And so Jesus, knowing the elevated intensity of the enemy coming against them, engages in a season of fasting. Peter would write later, maybe he learned this just directly from Jesus about this season. You need to be sober. You need to be vigilant because your enemy, the devil, is walking about like a roaring lion just looking for somebody to devour. And so when it is ratcheted up against you, friends, you're not without recourse. When the devil ups his game, stop giving him glory by complaining, moaning, whining, and groaning about it. We can have compassion with each other, but sometimes somebody just needs to get in my face and say, will you shut up with all of your whining and complaining and get on your knees and talk to the Son of God who is for you, who is in you, who is in front of you, behind you, underneath, and above you, Jeff? Instead of having continual hand-holding and back-patting services, every now and then, come on, every now and then, we just need to get in each other's face and say, I love you, but you're not thinking correctly here. Why don't we get in the presence of the one who is greater than the one who is coming against you? And why don't we see what he's going to do? Travel essentials. Be prepared for intensity. If you're going to go where God wants you to go, it will get intense. That's why we call the absence of that a comfort zone. The devil will gladly leave you alone. Just continue to live as no threat to what the devil is doing. He'll leave you alone. But when you go on journey with Jesus, when you leave the comfort of the Shire, and you start following the Son of God into the place where dragons are, <laughs> friends, the intensity is going to go up. But your identity is secure because you are the son or the daughter of the Most High God. He has chosen you. He has pursued you. He has saved you. 
He has sealed you. He has filled you, and he's commissioning you. Receive that with humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And when all of those three things, ha- three things begin to flow in your life, there you are. Say, where? Your destiny. See, we just walked it backwards. There you are in your destiny. You're the person who he's made you to be doing the work that he's called you to do.